0: the Global News Review for 24 February. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, thanks for uh, being with us today. I'm joined by Ambassador Dick Bowers and uh, Dr. Breck Walker, our usual Global News Review team. And today we have a special guest, uh, Ambassador uh, John Kornblum, who will be with us shortly. Uh, gentlemen, uh, good to see you. I hope uh, everyone's over uh, ice and snow, snowmageddon here in uh, Nashville, as, uh, as John was pointing out earlier, uh, not, uh, not much more than the dusting for people who come from uh, further north, but uh, for, for Nashville, it was uh, quite, a, quite a day. So uh, welcome uh, Ambassador John Kornblum uh, to uh, the Global News Review. To, good to, uh, to have you with us today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Uh, Let me uh, introduce the Ambassador. Ambassador John Kornblum has a long record of service in the United States and Europe, both as a diplomat and as a businessman. He's recognized as an eminent expert on U.S.-European political and economic relations, in particular in Central and Eastern Europe. He served as the U.S. Ambassador to Germany from 1997 to 2001. Before that, he occupied a number of high-level diplomatic posts including US Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Special Envoy for the Dayton Peace Process, US Ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Helsinki Process, Process, Deputy US Ambassador to NATO, and US Minister and Deputy Commandant of Forces in divided Berlin. Again, uh, Ambassador, welcome. And uh, uh, we're looking forward to uh, having a conversation today on uh, the transatlantic issues. Thank Dick you. and uh and Breck, good to good to see you here with us today.
2: Good to see you. The snow is gone. I have no snow in my front yard anymore. But it took till today to get rid of it all. All right. I know, and John. Brick? It's not a heck of a lot that we get, but it was enough. <laughs> it. And Kay took a tumble on black ice, and so she's nursing oh. a, a, a oh. bum to bum. <laughs>
0: Okay, uh, and, and Breck, we, we don't, we can't see the palm trees in the background, so we don't know if you're in Florida still, or... Uh...
3: I'm, I'm still in Florida, and the sun's so bright I had to close the curtains.
0: Uh, okay. <laughs> well, we have, a, we have a nice sunny day here, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to uh, springtime, but I, I'm not sure we're out of the woods yet. Um, before we get going, let me remind everyone uh, that this week have a, we have a special town hall tomorrow night. Uh, Thursday, the 25th of February, and at 5.30 p.m., uh, we'll be hosting uh, Kelsey Davenport. She is the Director of Non-Proliferation at the Arms Control Association, and we'll be talking about the Iranian nuclear deal and the Biden administration and uh, how the clock is ticking on reaching uh, an agreement for the United States to return to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, Just an aside, I uh, watched uh, Ms. Davenport's appearance last night. She was with the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, and it was a terrific accounting of uh, developments in U.S.-Iran relations relative to the uh, nuclear deal. So you won't want to miss uh, the conversation she'll have here at the Tennessee World Affairs Council Thursday night, 5.30, and you can register on our website, tnwac.org. Also, uh, Kelsey Davenport and I uh, co-authored an op-ed on the Iran nuclear deal and the Biden administration's uh, obstacles to getting a deal done. And that appeared in The Tennessean on Sunday. And there's a a copy of that posted on our website, tnwac.org. So you can read that and be prepared with your good questions tomorrow night at our special uh, town hall on the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, Let me remind you that uh, we would like to hear your questions here today at the uh, the global news review as we go through the topics uh, feel free to add your questions to the question tab at the bottom of your screen or uh, save them to the end uh, but we uh, would do like to hear from you okay uh, dick uh, over to you and we will uh, we will start out with our uh, topics du jour Dick, if you, uh, unmute? Are, are you on mute there,
1: Hello
2: Ambassador? There. <laughs> <laughs> so glad to see you. Glad to join you. We're, uh, topic number one is Biden and the Transatlantic Alliance. Topic number two is social media and global regulations. And then topic three, we're going to be reflecting on Desert Storm at 30. So it's 30 years ago today that the main U.S. grounded salt took place to go into Iraq.
0: Okay. Brett, coming to you. Are you on mute?
3: Uh, no, I don't think so. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yeah, we got you. Go ahead. <laughs> the question of the day is this. Uh, Australia is in a battle with this social media outlet after Canberra moved forward with legislation to require payments to news sources for use of their content. The provider responded with a news blackout and user restrictions, angering many Aussies, and the possible answers are A, Google, B, TikTok, C, Facebook, and D, Instagram. And Pat, I wanted to ask how many of our panelists have been on TikTok before?
0: Well, I you know, I, I was i was just about to say, you gave us a, a sterling uh, <laughs> recitation of, of TikTok, and you left us with the image of a TikTok, your favorite TikTok video was it a uh, some sort of mammal doing some trick or something? What was that? I believe again? it was
3: I believe it was a hippopotamus eating a full watermelon in one bite. That was a great video. I recommend it to everybody.
0: <laughs> okay, well, we'll uh, I I, uh, I neglected to follow up and, and look that up, but I'll, I'll it <laughs> on my list now. Um, but no, I haven't been on TikTok. I, I'm aware of it. And, uh, i think with that we'll uh, we'll move on our uh, our first topic today <laughs> we are we are going to uh have a, uh, a deep dive into the uh, transatlantic alliance we've we've mentioned it in the news review some of the uh, foreign policy objectives of the uh, of the administration uh going forward and uh today we uh, we are very pleased uh, to have with us uh, ambassador john cornblum who uh he is the, the guy, the go-to guy to tell us what is uh, happening in the, uh, the alliance, what the Europeans' reactions are, uh, and what we should look forward to in terms of the uh, Biden administration's uh, claim to be back into uh, uh, multilateralism and, uh, and America's back. Uh, Ambassador, the,
1: the floor is yours. Thanks, Patrick. Hello to everybody. Um, I have spent some time in Europe. In fact, I've been living there with, except for now, of course, where I'm happily in Nashville because of the quarantine. I've been living in Europe uh, uninterruptedly since 1997. So that's 24 years. And before that, I was there a long time also. So I I have um, a lot of uh, background and lots of things to think about with Europe. But I think the basic point that I would like to start with today especially for your listeners is important is that, uh, whatever president Biden said, whatever he was followed by the chancellor of Germany and the president of France in his speeches at the Munich conference, uh, it's important for us to remember that, um, even though China is a big thing on our screens right now, even though, um, we have lots of challenges in places like Afghanistan, and even though Russia is peppering us with uh, some kind of cyber box or whatever they are, <clears throat> the very core of American foreign policy since the beginning of the Republic has been Europe. We are after all a European society. And we, through the entire 19th century, we essentially had no foreign policy because it was taken care of uh, for us by the British. Even today, some people don't like to admit this that the British who we had fought a war and who were the last ones by the way to uh, enter the uh, United States Capitol and, and, and they, they trashed it uh, in 1812. <clears throat> that the fact is that after that the British had such an interest in keeping other European countries out of the new world that they sponsored for us something called the Monroe Doctrine, which we think is a a brilliant American diplomatic move. But what it really was, was a a brilliant move to get the British to provide our security for us. So we're, uh, we have a lot of experience with being dependent on Europe. After 1945, it turned around and they were dependent on us. (laughs) And from that point onward, we've had a back and forth about what America is doing, what the Europeans should be doing, how much America is contributing, how the Europeans should be contributing. Much of the debates which are going on today were the same ones that we had in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and 90s. The difference is, however, that the Cold War is over, that American society is changing very rapidly, not only time is passing, but it's becoming a less European-based society and that the Europeans haven't kept up. We have to be honest about this, they haven't kept up. They're not keeping up economically, militarily, and strategically, they play almost no role in the world. What they have been good at is maintaining a very strong manufacturing economy and they sell lots of manufactured goods to China, to Russia, to South Asia, to Africa, to South America, and in particular, the Germans, who are the most important country in Europe, uh, sell more than anybody else. And so European behavior is almost by definition more conciliatory, more focused on keeping pragmatic ties open, uh, less idealistic. European behavior is always based, also based on the a feeling that Europe has still to recover from the horrible 20th century that they. They had, whereas the 20th century was actually quite good for the United States, so we we start with a different point of view right there. And finally, we have the difference between maybe one of the reasons why a lot of our ancestors came to America to begin with. Europe is a top down society based on structures based on bureaucracies and based on stability. America is a very diverse society based on achievements on earning money and on uh, finding new visions and new, new horizons to uh, conquer. And so this was all brought home to me about uh, seven or eight years ago when uh, Barack Obama came to Berlin for his first big speech as president. And he spoke for an hour or so and he listed 43 issues upon which the United States and Europe were going to cooperate. And not once did he mention the European Union or NATO. In other words, he saw Europe as as a bilateral territory, but not as a peace project as they see themselves. This caused great consternation in Europe because it it gave the impression that we were somehow abandoning our support for their efforts to overcome the 20th century. Uh, Obama rapidly said, no, he didn't mean that. He just wanted to show how much he valued their friendship and their their support but the fact is they don't want us to tell them how much they're going to support us they want us to tell them how much we're going to support them in what they consider to be a historic historic development that they're still uh, in the midst of so that's the background to lots of the debates that we have they're not necessarily dramatic and they're not necessarily even very important because the fact is we get along and do things together on very many things, including Desert Storm, which we're going to commemorate this week. But the world is changing. We're going to have another item today on regulation of the Internet. Uh, New generations are coming. And so there has been a good deal of contention between America and Europe, actually long before Donald Trump ever appeared on the scene he sort of put the uh, cherry on top of the uh, ice cream soda, if you will, by not only differing from the Europeans, but suggesting that they were our enemies and we were gonna do them in. That didn't develop a whole lot of sympathy in in Europe for that point of view. And uh, the Europeans, I I think actually were quite mature in the way they handled it. They essentially said nothing for four years. And um, So we have to see Biden's uh, participation there as partly a mea culpa, partly saying friends don't talk to each other that way. He was quite clear on that. But also secondly, an effort to rebuild the the European platform because uh, however much we may like or dislike the, the French president or the British Queen or whatever. The fact is that the relationship with Europe provides the United States with an unbelievable strategic platform. Since the uh, end of the Cold War and the expansion of NATO and the European Union, we have constructed together with the Europeans, a democratic community which stretches from the Russian border on the Baltic or the Black Sea, wherever you want to see it, All the way to the Russian border between the United States and Russia in the Bering Straits. that is two thirds of the northern hemisphere of the world. It's also a community of about a billion people. It's a community of very rich, highly educated and strategic people who still produce some of the best uh, industrial goods in the world. We also shouldn't forget that the Pfizer vaccine marketed here by a company based on German immigration to the United States was actually developed by a country in Mainz, Germany, a company in Mainz, Germany, uh, InnoTech, I think it's called. And so this vaccine is actually a German product but to make it even more interesting, the people who developed it were German citizens and I think born in Germany, but they were of Turkish origin. So they demonstrated the fact that Europe is also very rapidly becoming a country of, uh, countries of immigrants. Germany has exactly the same percentage of foreign-born as the United States does. And the United Kingdom has a much higher percentage of foreign-born than the United States does, partially because of their colonial legacy. So our societies are very closely matched in many ways, except for the fact that they started and lost World War II and we won World War II. And I'm not trying to be uh, sarcastic about that. That is the underlying problem that, they, that we have. Their sense of confidence, their sense of strategy, of strategic importance was totally destroyed in the first 50 years of the 20th century. And it has never come back. Our sense of self-confidence grew And for about 45 years, because the Russians uh, occupied much of Europe, we in fact managed a alliance in Europe. But since 1990, when the Cold War ended, we have become less interested in alliance tasks and less adept at doing them, to tell you the truth. Because we think we should all now just be, we Americans and Europeans, should now all just be good Western people who are doing the same thing together. And we have tended, and I say we, I don't mean people like us here, but I mean the highest levels of US government or the highest levels of US academia have tended to forget that the Europeans don't see themselves the way we see them ourselves. They see themselves as damaged goods and damaged goods which still need to have an awful lot of uh, recovering to do. So this leads to misunderstandings continuously. I won't even begin to go into them. We just misunderstand each other off again and again and again. Add to that, they built in still rejection rivalry of two continents, one of which was born of the uh, culture of the other. They still consider us to be upstarts and we still consider them to be uh, old fashioned, uh, broken down uh, imperialists. And so there's an awful lot of this kind of stuff that goes on. I can tell you from my experience, I don't for 35 years, I did more or less nothing but multilateral cooperation with the Europeans. Uh, the uh, the sarcasm gets quite heavy sometimes when you uh, when you're dealing with Europeans because they they still are sort of it's sort of like somebody once mentioned it to me. It's like being the second son in the family, you know, the, the, your mother. And I was the I was the first. It's like being the first son. I mean, I was the first son. Your mother comes to you and says, "You know what? We love you so much." we've got another one. And you say, what do you mean? We got one already, you don't need another one. And there's a little bit of, the, of that in the European view to us. What do you mean new world? We were already the world, we didn't need a new world. So anyway, I don't, not to make too big a point of it, but this part of it is also very important. And so when Joe Biden was there first sort of apologizing because we had a somewhat uh, a man whose manners weren't the most polished, so we say, as president. But secondly, because there are lots and lots of things and Biden, I know Biden, if I may say so, if I may drop names here, I know him personally quite well from years and years and years of working with him. He believes in the the theory, the, the, the reality of the fact that the United States can't really succeed globally if we don't have our European partners. He is committed to this. If you read his speech, which I just did before we started here today, Again, he is committed to making things work, but it's not gonna be so easy. Just saying we're back is not gonna be enough because there are major issues. Some of them quite easy to deal with maybe, but others such as the one which which is gonna be our, I think second uh, agenda point uh, in the internet regulation, cyberspace, cyber warfare, uh the effect of social networks in other words the entire big bag of issues which are tied to the new digital world we are far from having any kind of not only not having a consensus but i think maybe breck will talk about this we uh we don't even have a sense of where we want to go and you uh, look at the various uh regulatory uh, ideas being put forward even Facebook is now running big ads in the newspapers saying, "We want to be regulated. Please regulate us, please." But they don't. They themselves don't know what that means. If, if most regulators would say, "Okay, Facebook, you're you're gonna we're gonna sue you every time you put something bad on Facebook," and then, you know that's not going to work either. So, in other words, the opportunities for difficulties and disagreement are great. And the chances for success in many of these issues are not very great. And, and Joe Biden understands this. I'm sure he did. If you read his speech, it's, it's, it's peppered with, we need to do this. We need to be on this basis. We need to see that we are, we are something important together. It's sort of preparing himself, his administration, and the Europeans uh, with a, uh, for a very long and dragged out debate. And that's what we're going to have. But I think it's important not to overestimate the, the heat of such a debate because we've always had very heated debates with the Europeans. And um, it's, going to, it, it's also, however, not possible to predict success in the debate because uh, there are things that are so difficult to deal with. Corona has been a, a prelude to a, probably a couple of decades a pretty deep confusion about what's going on and pretty deep fears about what the implications of all of these new uh, digital tools. We haven't even mentioned uh, the two sort of uh, elephants in the China shop, that is uh, artificial intelligence and quantum computing, which if they take, really take hold the way people expect them to, uh, will turn our world totally on end. So, Biden is doing something very important in, in repairing relations and hopefully finding a basis for a very good cooperation with them. But we shouldn't assume that everything is going to be perfect because he says we're back. In fact, a lot of the Europeans were saying, What do you mean you're back? We've been here the whole time and you forgot us. So, it's up to us, it's up to you to win us back, not just to tell us that you're back. So, there's a certain amount of sarcasm in Europe also these days about. The Americans say we're going to come back and tell you what to do again. They're not really willing to listen to that. I'll stop there. Terrific. Ambassador, a- Ambassador,
0: thank you for that. That's uh, a good, uh, good kickoff to our program today. And
3: go ahead, Breck. I was going to say I have a question, if you don't mind. Of course, uh, uh, eight years ago. We had a presidential election, I think most folks thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and, and of course uh, Trump won. And this past election, everyone thought Biden, or most folks thought Biden was going to win handily, and it was very close. Uh, and it's not too difficult to prospect to think that Trump could, could, could compete very vigorously next time around. How does that affect Europeans in their dealings with Biden? Because they, again, it's sort of whiplash from one administration to another.
1: Well, yeah, that's exactly that point you hear fairly often. Uh, We're we're happy to have him here, but it's not just Trump. It was also George W. Bush, who was not exactly a big favorite. The fact is, however, that the Europeans don't have anywhere else to go. And uh, maybe I should make this point. There's no no, uh, option for Europe, but to be as close as the United States. They are part of the American system and I co authored an article with Richard Holbrook about 20 years ago, in which we said the first thing we should realize now is that America has become a European power. Uh, Europe could not exist the way it exists without the close relations with us. So, and they know this, but at the same time, they, after all, are societies which are much older than we are and which controlled the world for 500 years. They don't feel that they need to bow to us every time. And I think they're right about that. But they are worried about the inconsistency of our, if you go back over presidents, well, we can even go back to John F. Kennedy. I won't go through the whole list, but just think of the ups and downs that our own country, but also our allies had to deal with, with the various presidents who came along between John F. Kennedy and uh, Joe Biden. I again, just mentioned Vietnam for one, for example. And so, uh, yeah, you're right, Rick. They are happy but skeptical.
0: Ambassador, can I, can I ask, um, it seems that in the run-up to Biden taking office, everyone was saying the Europeans are delighted and they couldn't be happier. Uh, but in the, in the past couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of stories of, about how Europe is really taking uh, a practical look at what the relationship means. And for example, uh, US policy regarding China may not be the same cup of tea that the, the Germans are interested in. Uh, they're heavily invested uh, with China, uh, Volkswagen, et cetera. So there, there may be a, a lot of areas where we still have uh, speed bumps in, in restoring the relationship, even though there was this happy,
1: glad, kiss, kiss,
0: hug, hug at the beginning.
1: Well, yeah, but that's always been the case. My point is that's always been the case. Uh, John F. Kennedy and Conrad Adenauer hated each other so much they would barely talk to each other. Helmut Schmidt and Jimmy Carter didn't talk to each other. Gerhard Schroeder and Were, were, those, were those
0: personality was, issues or were those policy issues
1: mostly personality, but some part. I mean, but part at least when you get up at that exalted level, the difference between policy and personality is. Uh, <laughs> hard to discern. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, uh, Bill Clinton considered Helmut Kohl to be almost his father that he never had. I can tell you, I'll tell you one small, small secret, which is also 20 years old. I used to be the interpreter for their private discussions and and I was told you weren't there and you didn't take any notes, right? And I said, right, I didn't take any notes, Uh, but I was there and I interpreted back and forth for them. I did that six or seven times and it had nothing to do with foreign policy. It was just being friends. Sure. And so, um, so personality always plays a role.
0: But now in the case of, uh, of the Europeans and the United States, we have many more, not personality issues, but sincere uh, policy disagreements, especially in terms with how we deal with China.
1: Yeah, and, that, and, and this is partially a trap that the Germans are in because they have really, well, since the early 60s, I would say, or maybe even the 50s, they profited um, for all of the destruction and death and, and horrible aspects of World War II. They profited considerably from the fact that after the war, they were able, much of it with American money, to rebuild their industry with, in, in, with very modern facilities. And this gave them a tremendous head start and they, became, you know, the world's exporter. And that fact, being the world's exporter, has caused them tremendous friction with their European partners, tremendous friction between with the United States, and again, not just with Donald Trump. He did it, attack them quite strongly for that, but I can tell you uh, Barack Obama and his various secretaries of the Treasury were tearing their hair out after a while when they would try to talk to the Germans about trying to lower their trade surplus, raise their wage levels so that they wouldn't be so competitive with other countries. This is also the case within Europe, by the way, the the, the Mediterranean countries. One of the issues which is waiting to explode in our face is the economic collapse of the Mediterranean countries in Europe, which is going forward without any interruption. And you talk to them and they'll say, well, you know, our people want to have some better wages the Germans haven't had a real wage increase in 15 years, which, by the way, is true. And uh, they're, they're being unfair by, by the fact that their people are willing to have, exert such wage discipline that their, their prices don't go up. Yeah, they're right about that. It's, is it unfair? The Germans would say, well, of course, they want us to finance their uh, a sloppy, lazy life. And I've heard those words exactly put that way. So there are lots of problems within Europe But the fact is that um, now 75 years after World War II, Germany has emerged as the major country in Europe. And I personally say maybe I'm prejudiced since I've lived there a long time, but it's probably the third most important country in the world right now. And it has no, on the one hand, it tries to be a very good partner to Europeans and Americans on things that they think we care about. But on things that we think they don't care about, like their internal economic system, they're not good partners at all. And this is not so much a problem with us because we're so big big that we can take care of ourselves. But lots of the other Europeans are really quite angry at Germany for this. And we can jump, maybe you wanted to ask about it anyway, the uh, Nord Stream pipeline, which is a very big issue between us. Fact is that- A good good
0: segue there. We just uh, got a question from Austin Travis. He wanted to know uh, more about the Nord Stream 2 and uh, what uh, America might do if we thought that we needed to uh, seek to uh,
1: end that deal. Well, there's virtually nothing we can do. In the end, we won't do anything and it'll be built. But the, the reason that the president, including President Biden, one of the reasons that he's so firm about it is the fact that the U.S. Senate voted 99 to nothing to condemn it. Now, uh, I'm not being, I hope, too sarcastic in suggesting that not too many US senators know what the Nord Stream pipeline is. But there are lots and lots and lots of senators with Polish, Czech, Slovakian, Romanian, Baltic constituencies. And uh, the, the, the Eastern Europeans have been lobbying like mad, as have the, Europe, the Ukrainians who would be the ones who would be hurt the most by the pipeline. And so they were able to convince 99 senators in a a period where you hardly could get 99 senators to agree to have lunch break these days, um, that that, that the North Street Pipeline was the devil's own work. Right. And what this does is this demonstrates that much of the things which the, the, the Europeans sometimes like to say are US European disputes are really disputes between the big countries in Europe, which well down now to France and, and Germany, especially Germany and other Europeans. And so we're there as the referee many times. That's a role that we don't like. Americans don't like to be. We don't even like to feel that we're responsible for a world order. We don't wanna be the policeman of the world. So it puts us in a position we don't wanna be in. And it makes it even worse because then the Europeans, and it's not just the Germans, the French and the Italians and others do this too. Whenever they have a big dispute among themselves, they say it's the Americans who are causing all the trouble. That's one of our happy roles that we play being the big power. Yeah. So what's going to happen in the Nord Stream pipeline? The first place, it's a mistake. It's a horrible mistake. And many, many people in, Europe, in Germany are saying this right now. But it is part of this Industrial complex. They don't have a military industrial complex. They have an export industrial complex, and it's part of this industrial complex, which is going to, in fact, uh, really push hard to have it completed. It's now been completed, except for the last 150 kilometers, and so it's going to be very hard to suggest it shouldn't be built.
0: Well, we'll but be, I uh, hope.
1: What I hope this is one last sentence. What I hope that comes out of it is that we negotiate with the Germans and they come up with some conditions on the pipeline, which protect the interests of the Poles, the Baltics, also Finland and Sweden are very upset about it, but especially Ukraine, which is gonna lose, if the pipeline is built and if they aren't compensated for it, they're gonna lose several billion dollars worth of transit fees every year, which for a country like Ukraine, whose economy isn't the strongest anyway, is a disaster.
0: Yeah, well, we'll uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that. no worry about the uh, sarcasm is welcome here, and the uh, the senate <laughs> the senators who uh, who might be offended probably aren't watching uh, the global news review. Uh, last uh, lastly on uh, Germany, I, I'm going to have one question for you. But uh, Joy Odell, this is a comment uh, regarding the attitudes of Germans. Uh, she hosted two German uh, young men um, recently, and they were charming. Uh, they asked, "Is it true that in the USA you can be poor?" And, and work to become wealthy. And of course, they, they answered the, that question. Yes, them. But that's that's, answered yes, yeah. Just to, just to comment on the yeah. Amer- American-German uh, uh, building bridges uh, across the way. Let well, me- I'll, uh, I'll just say one last thing here, and
1: that is we shouldn't forget that we dominate their wives. Dick can uh, attest to this. We dominate their world. One day last week, when the, um, there was some 500 big things going on the first item on the German morning news, which I always watch in the mornings on television was the death of one of the founders of the Supremes. Mm. And uh, our culture dominates them. Uh, And um, who is the most important person in Germany right now or in France or in England? Maybe Joe Biden, American, I mean, but it's also maybe Jeff Bezos or the head of Facebook or the head- uh, Or or Tiger Wood in the moment, (laughs) uh, or the head of uh, of uh, Google. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's equally interesting that the heads of Google and Microsoft at the moment were born in the same place in India where Kamala Harris's family comes from.
2: Yeah. John, uh, let me throw in a throw in a question. I don't want to step on Breck's time here, but. The Europeans have a totally different view of intellectual property and my data and who it belongs to and all that kind of, why did that shift or that, that chasm emerge that the American view on this is wild west, whatever you want, your stuff belongs to Facebook and you can't do anything about it. Whereas the Europeans are really moving in the direction of putting in some kind of individual Worker rights—that this stuff the belongs right to, to, to me, not to them. Right?
1: They call it the right to forget, too. In other words, they should be have tell Google you you're supposed to forget our data if we want you to.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, this goes back to the to the wars too in the 20th century, and we shouldn't forget. Uh, it shows again that years have passed, but we shouldn't forget that until 1990 one third of Germany was controlled by a communist authoritarian government, uh, which the secret service was probably one fifth of the whole population. So this is a very, very uh, emotional thing for them. It's not just a question of whether you trust uh, Zuckerberg or not. It's a question of their entire sense of human rights that they've developed after World War II. which was preceded by a period
2: where there were absolutely no human rights whatsoever. Well, I was kind of struck with it I mean, when you start with the Industrial Revolution. Basically, the workers had no rights at all. If you, the guy who owned the factory, called all the shots, and it took it took a century or more to get right. into labor unions and equal rights and bargaining chips. And the Germans now are much far ahead, more uh, more farther ahead than we in those kinds of worker councils and, and balancing kinds Very of things. Very much so. And the same sort of thing, it seems to me, is with, with the Facebook, Google space. Uh, we have to develop a new way of dealing with these things, and we're- We do, and there's we, don't, there's- we don't have a plan. There's no, Well, a plan, it would be if we had a plan,
1: it would be, if we had an idea of what the plan was, or if we even had words to describe what should be in the plan. Yeah. Again, we're gonna get into this later, so I won't say too much, but yeah, that's right. And so, but Dick, the, the, the important thing now is to go through the, um, leave aside for a minute in industry and trade. They're big things without a question. And as I said, the Germans focus on them a lot. But if you have start with Corona, it's very interesting to see if there's one country which managed Corona carefully, it was Germany. there's one country which wasn't so careful about it, it's the (laughs) United States. We're we're not a whole lot worse off right now than they are. And in fact, on the vaccine, we're doing a lot better on the vaccine than they are. And so why do I mention that? Not to to make fun of the Germans, but just to say these challenges which are coming up are really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully we will start to understand this and there'll be a little bit of modesty on the part of political leaders uh, that, that they're not so far ahead as they think they are. But the entire internet regulation issue, which of course is, we know is not just internet, it's more than that, it's global supply chains, it's, it's uh, tremendous networks which transport financial and commercial data, et cetera, et cetera. It's, a, it's an immense can of worms. Add to that the cyber thing and, and, and the fact that the Russians seem to have decided that their big power status will now be def- defined by their, uh, their um, engineers, who have, who, which they have lots of good ones, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's mind-blowing what's going to happen. And that's the <laughs> point I keep trying to make with people, that it's not just going to be a, a kiss, kiss, hug, hug, and we're back and it's going to be okay. The, uh, the challenges which are coming are really mind-blowing.
0: Well, we, we are going to have to dig much deeper into this. Uh, we, we do have a couple more questions that will hold to the uh, Q&A at the end uh, on Germany uh, in particular, but uh, the EU in general. And I know uh, Dr. Breckwalker is uh, just dying to tell us about hippopotami <laughs> and watermelons and TikTok and, <laughs> and social media. So, um, Dr. Breckwalker, over to you.
3: OK, thanks, Pat. You're right. I should have uh, had the uh, hippopotami uh, video to post uh, as a lead into mine, but I'll try and be zippy here. Uh, so I'm going to talk about social media and uh, and a little bit about uh, governmental regulation. And all of us know that social media plays such an outsized influence in our modern societies. And that influence, of course, as has been discussed by everyone, can be beneficial Benign uh, or malign, and I think Pat, you've got a slide. It may be up there, uh, but uh, the uh, Facebook today has 2.7 billion uh, subscribers, and YouTube has 2.3 billion, and WhatsApp has 2 billion, and there's Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And just to uh, Ambassador Kornblum's uh, comment on how we dominate uh, uh, Western European society, all but Instagram—I'm sorry, all but TikTok—of those companies are American uh, companies. But social media has a good side, but for every good thing we can say about it, it also has a bad side, kind of an alpha and omega, and that's the, that's the problem. That on the one hand, social media can be a terrific source of information and a means to socially act, interact with one another, uh, but as well, it's a very effective and targeted propaganda medium. Uh, that uh, is harming everyone's ability to know what's true anymore. The social media does not distinguish between, it's not good at distinguishing between real facts and what Kellyanne Conway might call alternative facts. And you know, I read these posts today that allege that uh, uh, COVID vaccines cause infertili- infertility, or in some sense, these vaccines are a government plot to track those who get vaccinated. And uh, so there's that. Uh, In some sense, social media is the ultimate in all things democratic because it gives all of us, everyone, a voice and a platform. And uh, it has become the go-to means for rallying protest against oppression. I mean, think of the Arab Spring, think of what's gone on in Hong Kong, think of Alexei Navalny in Russia that we've talked about two or three times over the last couple of months, and all the uh, anti-Putin material that he's putting on YouTube and that has uh, grabbed the attention of a worldwide audience. Um, social media's importance in this protest sphere is underlined by the fact that increasingly a government's first step in controlling protest is to cut off social media right at that moment to prevent uh, uh, protesting groups from uh, organizing. We've seen that recently in China, we've seen it in Russia, we've seen it in India, and we've seen it, we've seen it in, uh, in Myanmar. Social media has become a key political communication tool, and all you have to look at is President President Trump's use of Twitter, which was integral to getting his message out unfiltered by what he would term a biased mainstream media. He has, somebody counted up the other day, over 34,000 tweets while he was in office that made him a daily presence in our lives, in American lives, unlike any politician in my mind who came before him. and then uh, social media threatens to displace conventional news media. Uh, I'm not going to get into it uh, unless people want to at the end, but the row between Facebook, the recent row between Facebook and the Australian government is uh, is an example of that. And more problematic is how uh, social media slices news sources so thinly, quite thinly, and it provides the opportunity for each of us to get news from only sources that we agree with, from sources that actually cater to me or to you to- depending on what our political philosophy is or what our lifestyle is or whatever it may be. And that single source of news, increasingly for each of us, is not a healthy situation for democracy, uh, in my mind, or for uh, good government. So the question becomes, can we keep the good and regulate the bad aspects of social media? Can can the adverse adverse side be eliminated or at least controlled through a combination of self-regulation and governmental uh, supervision? Now, that question, of course, raises all sorts of questions about, are we restricting free speech? Are we engaging in censorship here? Uh, uh, And so maybe social media is destined to become sort of a Frankenstein, an out-of-control medium that that is going to, over time, degrade democratic societies and perhaps even empower authoritarian ones. Now, uh, on the regulation side, uh, in the United States and I think uh, elsewhere, Uh, The large social media companies have engaged in some level of self-regulation right from the very beginning in terms of, for example, barring posts that are sexually explicit, that attack someone for their race or gender or sexual orientation, that encourage violence, uh, and so on. But in the last few years, the big platforms, Facebook, et cetera, uh, have begun to try and limit disinformation. They are fact-checking posts or trying to and and removing those posts found to be false. Uh, And I think that uh, Pat also has a slide of just how many posts have been blocked. uh, And it's in the including spam. It's in the billions uh, uh, over the last uh, over recent months. I read a couple of days ago that Facebook now has 15,000 people hired to do nothing but fact check. Uh, and Facebook even some and other platforms, even some instances, have gone to banning political ads, which in some sense I can understand because political ads are not typically known for their factfulness. But uh, nevertheless, it's very controversial when that starts to uh, happen. So this has resulted in a, in a firestorm of uh, controversy. You know, one person's opinion is another person's falsehood. And there's issues of free speech versus censorship. Plus, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to be consistent in applying standards. Because uh, for a time, Twitter and Facebook would allow public personalities, most especially President Trump, but even people like Beyonce, to say some things on Twitter that I couldn't have gotten away with uh, as an ordinary user. User. So you can see what a can what a can of worms uh, we have here. So. Uh, uh, this mess has increasingly drawn the attention of governments uh, who are trying to figure out how best to regulate the social media companies. And as you'd expect, the approaches, uh, and I agree with John, that nobody really knows where they want to go yet. And uh, these tentative approaches certainly differ. In the United States, social media companies enjoy very strong liability protection relating to any posts that uh, are made on their platforms. And to date, they are largely self-regulating, although there are growing calls for government regulation, as John mentioned, including by the platform companies like Facebook uh, themselves, uh, because they're faced with such difficult decisions that they feel uh, attacked from all sides almost. In Germany, and John may know more about this than, uh, than I do, in 2017, I believe, they passed a, a network enforcement law called Net DG. Which, among other things, requires any internet platform with more than two million users. So that means everybody that I mentioned at the very beginning requires those platforms to put in place a system where, where uh, potentially illegal content, meaning slander, threats of violence, and so on, to put in place a system where that can be re- where users that see it can that can be reported and, if appropriate, deleted in a designated time frame. That, in some instances, is just 24 hours so for example in response to this law facebook set up a system where users german users can take a screenshot of the offending page choose one of 20 offenses uh illegal offenses that they think the post is allegedly committing and submit it to facebook for review and at least when this first got underway facebook was reviewing hundreds of thousands of screenshots every week uh, this was if that's what uh, if germany wanted uh, people reporting on what they saw as uh, uh incorrect facebook post uh, that system was working um the in the early going in germany the biggest complainer appear, of, of that new system appeared to be uh the far right alternative for germany party uh that branded the net D, uh, net dg uh, uh law as a censorship law but on the, on the left as well, there were plenty of journalists and Internet activists that also complained that censorship was uh, in play here. And then you can go to the other extreme, which is China, the most restrictive censorship laws probably uh, in the world, certainly among major company, uh, countries. And many Western platforms are banned in China and their Chinese equivalents are closely monitored by the government. So. In my mind, at least, social media in China has turned into a means to spy for the government, the Chinese government, to spy on its uh, population. So Pat, let me close with just three quick quotes, one from an author, one from a political consultant, and one from a politician. The first is, quote, social media is something of a double-edged sword. At its best, social media offers unprecedented opportunities for marginalized people to speak and bring much needed attention to the issues they face. At worst, at its worst, social media also offers everyone an unprecedented opportunity to share in collective outrage without reflection. My second quote is, shorter, (laughs) quote, technology and social media have brought power back to the people. And then my third quote from a Pakistani politician is this, quote, I have said that propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation have always been part of political warfare. However, social media and related platforms have given it a new life and reach through which fake news phenomenon can reach everywhere. And Pat, I'd say to these quotes, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, Social media is very much a conundrum of the modern world that in particular, democracies need to figure out how to keep the good and, and limit the bad.
0: Well, Breck, uh, great presentation. Thanks uh, for sharing all of that. I would only add uh, regarding uh, social media in view of the events this week. If you want to be the director of the Office of Management and Budget, watch what you say on Twitter. And uh, <laughs> you know, you you just might insult a, a U.S. senator and uh, ambassador. We we won't. Uh, maybe we'll excise the sarcasm uh, from from the uh, videotape of this, so the Senate can't see it in case you aspire to some. Uh, confirmable uh, no. position I don't aspire to anything so it doesn't matter well <laughs> we're uh, uh any anybody have any uh comments or questions for uh, for Breck on uh, social media I know uh Dick you probably burn up the wires every day on on Twitter or Instagram what what's your I, I see you on Facebook what where else are you poking around
2: where else? Probably, I poke around all sorts of places, but I don't really use too many of these other social media sites. You, YouTube I use because it has a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of historical context stuff. If you want to see the Red Army's women's chorus, you can, you know, crank them up and feel good about it. That's things. your stuff. Yeah, you can. You can. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's good stuff.
0: <laughs> oh, maybe uh, there's, maybe well, we're approaching too much information there.
1: Yeah. We
0: didn't need to know that. Um, well, we uh, gentlemen, we're uh, we're running out of uh, runway here, so uh, I propose we hold over the uh, reflection of uh, the Desert Storm ground war. It will be uh, thirty years plus one week instead of uh, this afternoon. Uh, we do have a couple more questions uh, for Ambassador uh, Kornblum. We have uh, one from uh, Austin Travis, who's a political science major at uh, Lipscomb University. And he asks, um, how much of Germany's current influence and importance does Ambassador uh, Kornblum think is because of Chancellor Merkel's leadership? Basically, how much will German, Germany's influence be
1: hurt when she leaves office? Well, she's played a big role, no question about it. And it's, it's interesting to note maybe that just before she took office, 2003, 2004, when Gerhard Schröder was still chancellor, Germany was called the sick man of Europe. Nobody was talking about German domination of Europe in those years, because why? Because German, the German economy was still struggling with the incorporation of East Germany, which began in 1990. So in the early 2000s, it was about 10 years. But they put it all together and they've had an unbelievable run since then. And now they are... Where they will always be anyway. My answer to Travis's question will be: It depends a lot. But the fact is that Germany is such a such a uh, potential in Europe. It's the biggest country by far. It's the richest country by far. It's the most dynamic country by far. Uh, and it's also sitting right in the center of commun- uh, communist of continent where everybody has a border with Germany. And so uh, it's always gonna be the main country in Europe. But the question is how and under what circumstances?
0: We have a question from Charlie Kim, who is uh, says he works for the U.S. Department of State as an FSP specialist in international security and case methods. Uh, he asks, uh, he, he says that China has been developing its own digital currency and Russia and other nations of wealth and oil are developing the petrodollars So are Europeans depending more on euro dollars or seeking another currency other than the U.S. dollar because of its quick devaluation as the U.S. continues, quote, printing dollars?
1: Well, that's um, one of the biggest questions uh, that is around at the moment. If I had a good answer for that, I'd go out and probably earn a lot of those petrodollars. Conventional wisdom is that the United States is so... uh, firmly lodged as the center, not only of economy, politics, military, but also of the world's financial system, that the United States could make lots of mistakes and the dollar is going to continue to uh, dominate. Other people believe that um, our role will fade away as China becomes stronger and that the uh, Chinese currency or some, some, digital currency, some Bitcoin kind of currency, will ultimately take over. I haven't the slightest idea, to tell you the truth. But okay. I, what I do have is experience, and I have lived through at least four or five cases where people said the dollar was finished, and it, wasn't, it was far from finished. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, have, we have simply got ourselves into such a strong position that it's going to be very hard to replace the dollar. The entire credit card system is based on dollars. The entire yeah. airline systems are based on dollars. Yeah, the entire, various. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I said the entire world economy is based on dollars, and breaking that um, monopoly is going to be very hard. I'm not arguing it one way or the other, but uh, I, I'm just saying that the the advantages the United States has are so great that it's going to be very hard for them to be overcome.
0: Yeah, various uh, oil crises in the West gave rise to the notion that uh, the petrodollars was gonna drive a, a new basket of currencies. Right, um, never let happened. Me, let me uh, close with a question, unless uh, Dick and Brick have something more to ask uh, while you're here as, uh, as our special guest on transatlantic issues. Um, tomorrow night, we're gonna be talking about the Iranian nuclear deal and uh, Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken, met virtually with the EU three nations to talk about the Iran deal. What, what, do you, uh, what can you share with us in terms of the perspective from the Europeans uh, looking at uh, the United States and Iran uh, dancing on getting back into this deal? Do they, do they see this as something they need to get engaged with or just wait for Iran and the U.S. to figure it out or how would they approach no, it? No, no, they've been actively
1: engaged already. They've been talking with the Iranians. I mean, the Europeans want us very much to get back into it because the agreement has, only has real validity if the United States is part of it. Uh, President Biden wants to get into it. And the Iranians have at least given, you know, halfway positive or halfway or, or halfway not negative, at least uh, re- reactions to it. I think in the end, the question is gonna be, can we find some kind of face-saving device for the Iranians so that they're just not giving up and saying, OK, Trump was right that we're coming back anyway. And right. most people believe that that, that has, can be found through uh, lessening the sanctions that the Trump administration put on the Iranians. I don't have the slightest idea whether that's a, a viable thing politically in this country uh, or whether it would be enough for the Iranians. But there has to be some, this is what I read anyway, I'm just telling you what one what, what hears from people is there has to be some kind of gesture in their direction because they have, they seem to be, uh, have carried out the agreement correctly, except the parts which they've gone back on, but they they have not violated the agreement. They weren't the ones who tried to abrogate it. So there's a certain um, pressure on the United States to do something to kick this back into action again. The question is, what is that something and is there something that Biden could sell politically in the United States?
0: And well, we'll have think. a uh, we'll have a robust conversation about uh, the obstacles ahead and uh, what the the Biden administration needs to do to to get the, to a deal.
2: One, yes, one sir. last question for John, Ambassador Bowers,
0: you have the floor. Did
2: you ever get your Stasi file? <laughs> no,
0: and I never will because
1: I I don't want to see it.
2: <laughs> well, uh, I got mine and it had a lot of stuff in from the Polish service and the Czech service right. and it had some stuff in there that uh, just totally fabricated, it had nothing to do, it wasn't true. Well,
1: I was talking on a insecure line between Berlin and the West yeah. for a total of probably 15 years and I assumed that every single conversation I had was recorded. You're correct, and I can't remember how many of them were the 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 the, the 20th century version of being of a bad tweet. And so uh, I'd rather I just decided I didn't want to see it because I I if there's anybody in the entire U.S. system who was deeply involved with these people for the long I was involved with them starting in the late 60s already. Yeah, so um, I just figured, why should I want to see all this? Okay. I had a friend who was there at the office and they, uh, who gave me a few little tidbits mm. out of it and they were all wrong. Yeah. So, that even well, that, that, sounds, have...
0: that, that sounds like something that an intrepid journalist uh, could uh, get a hold of and, and write a very... Uh, Maybe. I think this, this is and... private. I don't think... S- Especially any... if your
2: name is Steele, you can get these kinds yeah, of things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or Snowden. Snowden is...
1: But... Um, no, we were just talking about privacy regulations. Germany has very strict privacy regulations on these things also. And okay. it's very hard. There have been investigations over the years and some of them were successful to, to, to ban people from political life because they were Stasi agents. But to get that information out, you have to really, really hard. And so- Well, we, uh, we,
0: we certainly live in an interesting world. Uh, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure to spend uh, some time this afternoon uh, Ambassador Cornblum, uh thank, thank you, you so very much, much for the invitation for, for joining us you, again. Thank you, Ambassador Barrs, Dr. W- Dr. Breck Walker. Thank you, and we will uh, resurface the Gulf War next week. We have that to look forward to, plus uh, a couple of other topics from uh, the news of the week as we uh, drill down on what's going on in the world. Just a reminder uh, for those of you who are not members of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, please go to tnwac.join and look at the. List of benefits and consider joining. That's uh, the best way for you to support the global affairs awareness programs of the council. And we do uh, a lot more than global news reviews uh, and other community outreach webinars. We're heavily invested in working with uh, students in our community to help them understand more of what's going on in the world. So thank you for joining us today. Please join the World Affairs Council. Gentlemen, again, thank you so much for your time and your- Thank you very much. Good to see everybody. And your interesting stories, Uh, Breck. Enjoy Florida. You can you can peel back the curtain now. We will uh, we will see you all next week. Have a great day.
1: Bye bye. Bye bye.